Minister Science, Technology and Innovation Minister YB Kairi Jamaluddin said that the vaccine rollout will commence at the end of this month, with the PM being the first to receive the vaccine, followed by frontliners and at-risk individuals. Now, there's been a lot of discussion on social media and even among our own family and friends outlining the concerns that we have for a vaccine that was built in such a short amount of time. How will this rollout plan help to boost the Rakyat's confidence in getting the vaccine? I mean, I hear you about the vaccine confidence. There's been a lot of talk about you know, whether this vaccine has had enough time to go through the proper clinical trials and, you know, getting any kind of drug vaccine uh, developed within the space of a year is a remarkable feat, uh, let alone the one that we've seen, uh, you know, in COVID in the last year. And it's been kind of couched in a lot of medical jargon and it's been very difficult to get people to understand that. I think the main issue here is to do with uh, vaccine confidence, right? Mm -hmm. It's not so much about the uh, conspiracy theorists or people who are anti-vaxxers. It's about people who just are sceptical of how this vaccine is being developed, sceptical of where the vaccine comes from. And the way to counter um, that that distrust is with open communication. You know, transparency Mm. helps build confidence. And the more that this process is opaque and hidden from from the right, that's what I think breeds uh, vaccine hesitancy. What we need right now is a very clear uh, communication plan. That is, I think, the basis, that should be the basis, the foundation of the national vaccine rollout is to communicate um, to the public about the vaccine, what they're going to get, uh, how it's going to affect them, uh, how it's going to be uh, administered. And, and, you know, so the more information we have, the more empowered we feel, and that banishes any kind of hesitancy, I think. On that though, Melissa, sometimes don't you think that the news that everyone's watching and then they're getting news from social media as well, there's just mm. an overabundance of news that people are just coming to their own conclusions about, oh, this this vaccine doesn't work for this strain and everything. People are just mm. jumping to conclusions Sometimes, don't you think? Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, it's there's so much noise out there, and noise makes us confused, right? Mm. Uh, which is why this is the time for, I think, really kind of strong leadership and clear communication. I'm, I'm actually really glad that the government is not making this vaccine mandatory. So there's something yes. about the voluntary yeah. nature that that makes us feel more empowered. It's our decision, and what we need to make that decision is information, not noise, not all the the pollution, the noise pollution that we see on yeah. information channels, but rather very clear, concise information from authorities that we trust. And that comes back again to the confidence because underlying all this is trust, whether we have trust in uh, the government, trust in our institutions. And I think over a certain period of time, there's been an erosion of that trust and needing to dial up the trust once again or to gain that trust once again, I think is going to be quite a, a monumental challenge for uh, the minister, Kari mm. Jamaluddin and his team. Yesterday, Malaysia had a cumulative total of 261,000 cases in comparison to 138,000 when the movement control order was announced on January 11th. Almost a 95% increase from January 11th. The twice-extended MCO is scheduled to expire Thursday on February the 18th. Based on these numbers alone, should Malaysians expect the MCO to be extended any further? 
Ah, Asha, I'll look into my crystal ball. <laughs> Would you, darling? <laughs> so, I mean, this is the thing. Um, the heart of the issue here is the uncertainty, right? Um, mm. We don't know whether it's going to be extended another two weeks. We don't know whether after those two weeks it's going to be extended another two weeks. Uh, as we've seen in the past, it's always been this two week, two weeks extension. In the beginning, that was fine because we needed the flexibility uh, to assess the situation. But one year down the line, I think what we need now is a little bit more certainty, a bit more long-term planning and clarity uh, in communication. So if it's going to be a month of MCO, then at the uh, start of it, say it's going to be a month of MCO and we will reassess accordingly if we do need to make change, if the government does need to make changes for the time frame mm. of an, an MCO. But here's where I struggle with it, really. It's not the extension of the MCO that I think bothers most people. I think it's the lack of consistency and coherence when it comes to SOPs. The MCO period itself is fine, but the constant changing and tweaking of SOPs has led to a lot of anger and frustration. And Mm. I think that breeds Uh, a lot of fatigue when it comes to MCO and SOP compliance. Confusion as well. So you end up doing the wrong thing without meaning to. But um, it does look like this MCO 2.0 hasn't really helped bring down the numbers. But in your opinion, um, will Malaysia's economy be able to sustain another full lockdown like MCO? 1.0. 1.0. The experts that we speak to on the show warn us against thinking of, you know, this false dichotomy between saving lives and saving livelihoods. It's not one or the other. There is a way to save both. Um, and the way to do that includes a, a range of public health measures, including a long-term economic, a viable economic plan yeah. that includes, you know, you can have targeted lockdown, lockdowns, blanket lockdowns that we've seen in the past one year ago, actually, that was really a a blunt tool to manage the pandemic. I Mm -hmm. think now one year down the road, we should be a little bit smarter and have targeted um, lockdowns for specific areas that are seeing high daily caseloads. Yes. The idea that the economy needs to go on, that's true. What is needed also during this period is for those um, sectors of the economy that just cannot be opened up uh, to have the correct and uh, sufficient financial aid. That's where that's what's really needed at this point in time. Then we wouldn't be having this conversation about should we open up lives the economy, lives, but what about yeah. saving lives? Yeah. So if there are the right steps taken to provide sufficient financial aid, then I think we can do both helping the medical sector, the public health care to keep the caseloads down and, you know, to help people who really need help when it comes to bit small businesses and um, you know micro SMEs. Two incidents of women getting sexually harassed at roadblocks have been brought to the attention of Bukit Aman Department of Integrity and Compliance Standards Director Dato Zamri Yaya who stated that the Kuala Lumpur and Penang Police Departments are currently investigating both incidences. So what is the protocol when it comes to lodging a complaint when getting harassed in such a you know deviant manner? Uh, you know, when when I saw this story on social media, what happened was all um, you know many other women coming out to share similar stories, and I I really felt for them. I haven't had a similar experience myself, but I could relate, and I felt I felt terrible. Mm. Um, the idea that you would be harassed at a roadblock is scary already. But how many women actually have come forward or know their rights at a roadblock or know how to make a complaint? And I think uh, we've had a couple of um, comments by lawyers and um, you know rights groups 
who have been talking about okay these are your rights at a roadblock you should make a complaint take down the the officer's uh, badge number take down the name uh, make sure you remember the details and submit a complaint a police report the question is uh, whether those um, reports actually do get investigated whether remedial action will be taken to the offending officer and you know it's all of that is quite opaque we don't know um, because you know the police investigate uh, internally and we're not quite sure what ha- I personally don't know what happens and I've spoken to um, several lawyers who talk of rights you know the legal rights of our legal rights when we are um, questioned or detained mm-hmm. but um, up to that point I mean that there's been calls for an IPCMC uh, an independent mm-hmm. uh, a committee on this. This is why we need one. We need an independent body to in- help look into uh, the conduct and misconduct of police. Do you think with this coming out now that it will start to change where we will be privy to some information that happens and then the information that needs to be known by everybody will be made more readily available so that if this were to happen to them again, um, I've had a situation which made me feel very uncomfortable to sort of have the wherewithal to know how to play the situation. Yeah, uh, that's a good point because, you know, the more we talk about this, the more we feel empowered because we hear similar stories. We know what to do next, perhaps, and it's about getting educated. But it's also about understanding how widespread the problem is. Mm. I honestly think that there is a certain level of awareness now that we, we might be, you know, be there is a platform to perhaps raise even though it's through social media, there's a solidarity when you hear uh, similar stories, uh, similar to yours. I mean, this is why we need you know, that independent committee that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, the IPCMC. This is why we need the sexual harassment bill. This yes. is why we need, uh, you know, because those uh, bills and those laws and those committees, they don't just form a function of remedial action or um, looking into uh, investigation, but they also perform um, a function of advocacy and awareness, mm-hmm. talking about what it is that is, um, you know, sexual harassment, providing training for uh, the people in uh, positions of power and influence to be more sensitive. So it's, it's I think a system it's, that um, needs to be put into place. Yeah, to, exactly. I completely agree with you. Does it three Dr. Wan Aziza, Wan Ismail and Hannah Yeo have called for the long delayed sexual harassment bill to be tabled in Parliament soon to create safer spaces free from sexual harassment for the people, especially women and girls. So how will the sexual harassment bill be effective in fighting harassment, especially in cases like the two women in Penang and Kuala Lumpur that were harassed by law enforcement or law enforcers? I was waiting anxiously last year for the tabling of the sexual harassment bill. They promised it was going to be tabled last year. It yes. That did not materialise, of course, because Parliament was uh, the Parliament sitting was shortened. But uh, now we have comments from the Minister of, uh, of Women Affairs to say that uh, it's going to be uh, tabled in March. I don't know how that's going to... Oh, you said it's going to be ready in March. Yes. I don't quite know how that's going to happen given that we're under a state of emergency. Parliament has been... Um, you know, there's no Parliament, Parliament right? until yeah. August. So, How this, would that happen then if 
you know, Parliament's not around till August? I, I actually don't know. Mm. I mean, th- but this bill has bipartisan support. I don't think that there's, you know, much like the Undi 18 bill, mm. uh, this bill has bipartisan support. There's a lot of support from both sides of the aisle. Okay. The question is why, you know, the, the more we, we, the fact that we can't uh, have our lawmakers sit and debate bills means we can't have new laws like this anti uh, this sexual harassment, a law that is urgently needed uh, for, you know, uh, victims of sexual harassment to have some form of redress, some form of protection, because as we know, the current uh, laws are just not sufficient. Mm. Not only are they not sufficient, they're just, they're old. (laughs) What are the, JD and I were talking about this, what are the current laws in place right now for sexual harassment? How I understand it is that what this sexual harassment bill seeks to address Mm -hmm. is what current laws, or the gaps within current laws. So I think current laws have discussed, I think don't have a clear definition as to what sexual harassment or it's, it's too narrow so mm. it maybe looks at uh, assault it looks at criminal offenses but as we know sexual harassment is so wide-ranging now it yes. also includes the digital space it yes. includes verbal non-verbal it includes touch non-touch you know all of those mm-hmm. things need to be included in uh, this current bill which is why it's so important that we table and pass this bill so quickly I cannot emphasize how strongly I feel about this that we need this urgently Former Prime Minister Najib Razak said his pledge to the Employees Provident Fund or EPF to invest in the US has yielded good returns for the fund with the rate for last year expected to equal the one declared by ASB at 4.45% or even higher How risky is it for us Malaysians to have our EPF invested in open international markets? Um, right. So I think uh, EPF, looking at their asset allocation, they've got quite a high, percent, a high percentage of uh, overseas investment holdings mm. in assets. Um, and that's been really good for them because I, if I'm not mistaken, it's about 32% of EPF's assets are overseas at the moment. And if you look at their last quarter, so their th- fourth quarter results are not out yet. Highly anticipated because everyone wants to know what the EPF dividends are. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, if you look at the third quarter results, um, that's 32% of their asset allocation that's overseas, um, the international asset allocation, that actually yielded a 45% return um, uh, in terms of gross investment income. So that's really good for how they've been investing. So here's my my take on this. And based on what I've read and the experts that we speak to is that it's a good thing that EPF has diversified their asset allocation. Too much money in one market, particularly the Malaysian market, which is a small market, is dangerous. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Mm. So um, it's good that they have some diversification uh, in overseas investments. But the question is how much? And that's always been the question how, right. to, to kind of tweak how much, what percentage, what, what ratio. I mean, you know, it really is. I think that there's a limitation and the, the questions have always been whether we should increase that allocation based on the track record of how EPF has been investing. I think they've made all the right moves um, and really maximized what they've been able to do with their overseas allocation. So what's been, you know, talking to the experts that you've spoken to and had on the show, 
um, what's been sort of the, the nice sort of juicy medium percentage that that works when it's invested internationally? Well, I, I think and that's really depending on what kind of risk um, that economist is uh, is willing to take. Right. Okay. But with with EPF, of course, you know, there's, there's a high level of risk. You're talking about people's pension funds here. Mm. So the idea is that um, I think we had a bracket of 30 percent and uh, it was supposed to go up to, I think, a little bit more than that. So now, so now, you know, they've just slightly upped a little bit from 30 to 32. So that's mm. not too bad. I mean, they're not taking wild risks with our money. But I want to um, to make sure that we understand what the flip side is. If PF doesn't invest our money globally uh, in um, you know international uh, investments, then all that money is pooled within the local market. And that's too much. Our Malaysia market is really so small. And EPF already has a lot of money within the market. We're, you know, EPF is a big shareholder in many of the uh, the top shares in, in the country already, top performing shares in the country already. So there's a limited amount of return that they can get if they just invest domestically. The idea is to go abroad and find better returns.